Father God, would you be at work in us this morning? Would your spirit be present? Would you be teaching us? Please give us insight into a Bible passage that we don't know well and which we might just glide over given a chance. Please give us tender hearts ready to be challenged. Please give us open ears, open eyes, and minds ready for understanding. Please help me to speak clearly. Let you be glorified. Amen. How does this tally with the cheery songs we were just singing? Doesn't this passage epitomize what so many people would see as being the very worst of Christianity? A cynic would look at this and say, here is the hellfire and brimstone, genocidal Old Testament God that modern liberal sentiments should recoil from in disgust. Or, look, this is the arrogant, inflexible, xenophobic, reactionary Old Testament religion that is at odds with a meek and mild New Testament. Maybe ask yourself, if this was the first biblical text that your non-believing colleague encountered, and then they came to talk to you about it, how would that conversation go? I think passages like this that speak of global judgment are often unpalatable. They're tricky. So, Before we get our teeth into Zephaniah 2 and 3, it's worth us recognizing a few things so that we're starting from the right place. Um, Righteous judgment, four things to say about righteous judgment. The, The first is, it's not an Old Testament outdated theme. It is present throughout the whole Bible, and not just as a theme, but as a consistent warning that is proved right again and again. To pick out a few examples, God warns Adam of judgment in Eden and death comes. The Israelites in the wilderness are warned not to turn back from their God and when they do, the judgment is real and scary. Prophets like Zephaniah warn Israel and Judah again and again, not to depart from their Lord's good ways. And when they ignored the warning, exile came. Their nation was destroyed. And then it follows through into the New Testament. Jesus speaks clearly of a judgment to come on Jerusalem. He weeps for that city. And in AD 70, the Romans destroyed it. They devastated the temple. And after all of those predictions came true, all of those warnings turned out to be serious. The New Testament writers and the vision of Revelation, just like the Old Testament writers, warn of a great day of the Lord which is yet to come. We can't skim over a section like this, feel uncomfortable and split it off and ignore it. It's central to the Bible's message. And if we don't pay attention to passages like this, if we don't understand how they fit with our good news, our joyous songs, 
then the chances are that we don't understand our gospel fully. Second, righteous judgment passages like this are consistent. It's worth realizing that. Zephaniah doesn't pop up out of the blue and clobber Jerusalem. It would have been perhaps a hard pill for Judah to follow if this was the first that they'd heard of it. Should be said, elsewhere in the Bible, we do see that single warnings can change hearts completely. Jonah speaks once to Nineveh against his will, and the city repents. But actually, Zephaniah is just one in a long line of prophets through Old Testament history who have essentially all had the same message. There's a lot of overlap between the prophets that we've got, and those are just the recorded prophecies. There are no surprises here. Jerusalem is not being thrown a curved ball. Again and again and again, they have been warned that leading their lives without the living God is profoundly dangerous. Third comment to make about passages like this. Passages talking about judgment are rarely final. Judgment when it happens is pretty final, but... But the the message here is not. This is not the message of a wrathful, brutal God grinding people down with his disapproval. This is a call to change. This is a generous, astoundingly patient God who knows that his people cannot endure the consequences of their behavior. That that common perception of a surly Old Testament God of wrath is a shameful misrepresentation. Yes, he, he is a God of wrath. And that wrath is terrible for those it falls on. This passage shows us that. But remember the description of him in Exodus 34 as he reveals himself to Moses? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Remember Jonah's complaint against God. When he finally goes to Nineveh and preaches God's wrath on that vile city, and they repent and then turn around and the Lord spares them. And what does Jonah say? He says, that is why I ran away. Jonah 4, verse 2. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. God is more merciful than Jonah could bear. And so we should recognize, as we read passages like this, that they're not final judgments, they're compassionate warnings. They're calls to change. They are merciful invitations, not vindictive tirades. And so with that, the fourth thing to say about passages like this. Righteous judgment is a good thing. That's the most important thing for us to acknowledge as we come to it. Isn't there a certain perversity to the way that the idea of an Old Testament judgmental God is considered bad? That doesn't make sense. Judgment's part of justice. Don't we long for justice? Over the last weeks, there have been these claims that the Syrian government has used chemical weapons on its own people. 
Isn't that horrible? My notes have just switched off. That's frustrating. Here we go. When we hear something like that, don't we think that those awful actions need to be challenged? Don't our hearts rebel when we, we see news stories of corruption, of rich people living with impunity? Don't our hearts rebel when people who, who wrong us get away with it? When was justice a bad thing? Now, thankfully, the God of the whole Bible, who is merciful and abounding in love, is also a just ruler. He does pass judgment. And as we'll see here in Zephaniah 2, his judgment achieves his purposes. Righteous judgment is a good thing. And so as we look into Zephaniah now, what we're going to hopefully see is this. The righteous Lord's good judgment is coming. Remember the context from last week. Ian laid it out for us. Zephaniah was speaking to the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Um, this is after the northern kingdom of Israel has been conquered and taken into exile. They had not responded to the consistent warnings of the prophets. This is during the reign of King Josiah, who seems to take these prophecies and other ones on board, and he carries out great reforms. And the complaints that God makes through Zephaniah in chapter 1 were that the people of Jerusalem were fatally compromised. They were not living according to the law of their God. They were not following his ways. So in chapter 1, verses 4 and 9, we hear that Baal worship was common. In verse 5, there's worship of the stars and astrology and of the foreign god Molech. And as Ian pointed out to us last week, those are not harmless little things. They're not just hobbies. They were tied up with vile practices of sexual degradation and child sacrifice. And they were profoundly offensive to a good God. But even worse, chapter 1 verse 6, that the complacency... The people of Jerusalem neither sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Verse 12, they thought the Lord would do nothing, either good or bad. They depended instead on their riches and their prosperity and their silver and gold. They had become complacent, living without any meaningful reference to their God, ignoring him and his ways. And the problem with that is that throughout the history of their nation, the Lord has shown that he is active and real and jealous. He demands relationship with his people. It, he won't be ignored. In fact, the Bible portrays relationship with God as being all that life is really about. And Zephaniah warns Jerusalem, they have wandered away from the fountain of life. And so a day is coming when Jerusalem and Judah and all of it will be swept away. The righteous Lord's good judgment is coming. And that means that nothing that tries to exist in isolation from him will remain. Deuteronomy 4 and Hebrews 12 and the whole Bible together proclaim that the Lord is a jealous God. A consuming fire. He requires his people's attention. 
And so Ian left us last week on chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Gather together. Gather yourselves, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered, says Zephaniah. And we see something there of the merciful goodness of the judgment message. The call to change. The mercy in it. And then through the rest of chapter 2, he uses a poem to show Israel what the Lord's righteous, good judgment will look like and what it will achieve. So he gives us this picture of a sovereign God. And he does it by covering nations at each point of the compass from Israel. So he's talking about all of the earth. Bringing justice, but also establishing his promised nation. So first, in verses 4 to 7, he looks west from Judah. He looks into Philistia. Now, to make sense of this, we may need a bit of historical context. So way back in Deuteronomy 12, the Israelites have been wandering the desert. They're about to come into the promised land, and God gives them this command. He says, destroy completely All the places on the high mountains, on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods, break down their altars, smash their sacred stones and burn their Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. God makes it clear that when the Israelites arrive in Canaan, he is using them to pass judgment on those Canaanite peoples. It's uncomfortable for us. Their religious practices, those of Baal and Asherah and Moloch, are repulsive to God. And the Israelites are commanded to drive them out, to obliterate them. But in later books, we find that the Israelites don't complete the task. They fail to drive these people out before them. And those non-Israelite peoples remain in the land always as a thorn in the Israelite side. So they were military enemies. The Philistine peoples fought against Israel again and again, attacking them and subjugating them at times. There was an antagonistic relationship there, but they were also a source of temptation. Their Baal and Asherah and Moloch worship, pagan cults of fertility and sex and power persisted. And those caused problems for Israel right through to Zephaniah's time. And so Zephaniah says, on the day of the Lord's judgment, those enemies who still live in the land will be dealt with. The day of the Lord is a good thing. In his sovereignty, he is going to complete his promise to Abraham. He's going to give us the land. Do you see that in verse 6 and 7? This land will become a blessing instead of a curse. Instead of being full of enemies who constantly lead God's people astray, the remnant of the house of Judah will farm this land. The Lord will restore his people's fortunes. He'll bring them back. It's good news. He's going to drive out the enemies within. He's going to achieve what Israel couldn't. On the day of the Lord, his purposes will be fulfilled. Now, you can imagine maybe some stirrings of excitement amongst Zephaniah's audience here. 
some nationalistic pride bubbling up. If we've sought refuge in the Lord, we're going to be a great nation again. Bonus. Now Zephaniah looks east next. So at verses 4 to 7, said that the Lord would uproot and empty out Israel's enemies from within the land. Next in verses 8 to 11, he turns his attention to external foes. He says the Lord is going to destroy Moab and Ammon. These are the two nations immediately to the west of Judah. And again, a little bit of historical context is good. When the Israelites were were wandering from Egypt to the promised land, the Moabites and the Ammonites opposed them. Numbers 22 to 25 tell how the Moabites hire the prophet Balaam and ask him to speak against Israel and how they then work to undermine and seduce the Israelites. Historically, Moab and Ammon were enemies and antagonists to the Israelites. And see what the Lord has to say in verses 8 to 10. I have heard the insults and taunts and threats. And so I'm going to make Moab and Ammon like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to be a wasteland. It's scary, but the righteous Lord's good judgment is coming. And those who insult and attack his people will be answered. He will defend his people. These two nations, they've lived attacking Judah and the Lord for generations. And although he is an astoundingly patient God, he will see righteous justice. But see again, that even as he executes judgment, the Lord's good purposes are being worked out. Verse 9. The remnant of my people will benefit from this. They'll plunder their enemies. But but more importantly, verse 11. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth. Distant nations will bow down to him, all of them in their own lands. I wonder if there's a a hint there that just as there'll be a faithful remnant from Judah, perhaps they'll they'll be gleaned a faithful remnant from Moab and Ammon, but, but certainly... On the great day of the Lord, when he destroys all other idols, when he shows his supremacy and the living God reveals himself, he promises that people from distant nations will recognize and respond. This is no xenophobic God. This is a God who has revealed himself to all nations now, to the ends of the earth, and he calls people like us from every tribe and tongue to worship before him. His good judgment, achieving his good purposes, is astoundingly inclusive. Zephaniah has addressed enemies in the land and outside, west and east. Now he looks south. And we get this throwaway line in verse 12. You Cushites too will be slain by my sword. Cush was the southern Egyptian kingdom. It was one of the contemporary superpowers, but it was far, far away. The Lord's judgment will extend even there to those who live with no reference to him at all. He is sovereign over all the earth. And then finally, Zephaniah looks north to mighty Assyria in verses 13 to 15. And Assyria, he says, will be destroyed The great city of Nineveh, in Jonah's time, a little before this, had repented of its brutality and been spared. 
But clearly that didn't last. The Lord promises that Nineveh will be desolated. It will be reduced to a haunt for wild animals. It will be left as rubble. And the fine building materials, the cedar beams, which were good enough to build the temple with, remember, they'll, they'll be left exposed to the elements, rotting away. Why? And do you see the Lord's complaint against them in verse 15? They were the city of revelry, living the good life, arrogant in their security. They said, I am the one, there is none besides me. They have set themselves up as gods in their own time. Rulers of the earth. And thankfully, a righteous judge will not let such arrogance go unchallenged forever. The righteous God's good judgment is coming. Now, imagine if there might have been nationalistic stirrings in Zephaniah's audience at the beginning, I think here we'd be getting whoops of joy. See, Assyria is the big beast. It's the great evil. It's the threat to Judah's security. The greatest challenge for their politicians and kings has been how do we avoid being dominated and crushed or just assimilated by Assyria? And, and God says, I'm going to deal with them once and for all. And I wonder, are, are they saying, this is brilliant. Go Zephaniah. Who, who's he going to hit next? And Zephaniah says in chapter 3, verse 1, Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. And they're thinking, oh, who's it going to be? And the second half of verse 2 should land like a punch in the gut. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Wait, what? Which city out there should be trusting in the Lord? As Zephaniah goes on, her officials within her are roaring lions, her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning, her prophets are unprincipled, they cannot be trusted, her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law, and there is only one place he can be talking about. Jerusalem has the sanctuary. And in the time of Zephaniah, King Josiah has rediscovered the law and is trying to push through reform. He did more than any of the kings before him to lead his people back to their God. But the agonizing message of Zephaniah seems to be that the nation has not repented. Look at the, the really deliberate contrast he draws. Look at verse 5. The Lord is within Jerusalem. They've got no excuse. But verse 2, she does not trust him. She does not draw near him. Verse 5, the Lord is righteous. He does no wrong. But verse 1, Jerusalem is a city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. And verse 4, her prophets are unprincipled and cannot be trusted. Her priests do violence to the law. Verse 5, that the Lord dispenses justice day after day. But verse 2, she obeys no one and accepts no correction. Verse 5, every new day the Lord does not fail. But verse 3, her officials and rulers devour their people. They leave nothing till morning. Do you see the contrast? 
In chapter 2, Zephaniah has shown them how the Lord's judgment will extend to every point of the compass. But back home in Jerusalem, they're not living accordingly. They have not taken the invitation of chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. The Lord calls his people to seek him while he's near. Maybe they'll be sheltered, says Zephaniah. No, they won't. Chapter 3, verses 6 to 8. In verse 6, the the Lord says to Judah, you've seen what my justice will look like for all the other nations. You've seen they will be destroyed, demolished. He speaks in the past tense there. It's done in his eyes. So surely seeing that, Jerusalem will accept correction in verse 7. Can you see there that the painful longing to show mercy on his people? Remember, this is the God of Exodus 34. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. But that description goes on. He, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And here in verse 7, they, they were still eager to act corruptly in all that they did. Despite consistent messages from Zephaniah and the other prophets before him, they have not sought refuge in the Lord. They have not clung to him for guidance and deliverance. They have dallied instead with gods of fertility and wealth. They've imagined their security in financial prosperity. Verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. The righteous Lord's Good judgment is coming. King Josiah in these times made admirable reforms. He did more than any of the kings before him to lead his people back close to their God. And the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy seems to have been postponed, perhaps. The change of heart was not permanent, and within 50 years or so of this, the Lord has used King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and he has wiped Judah from the map. It's a tough passage, right? Don't worry. Next week, Matt gets to speak from a much more optimistic section. We get the rest of chapter 3. But, but let's not skim past this. Let's think instead, what does this mean for me? It may be that you're here visiting today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, in which case perhaps this strikes you as either ridiculous or horrible. I I hope I haven't simply confirmed negative preconceptions of what Christianity looks like. I, I hope, though, that a passage like this can help to dismiss any idea that Christianity is about being nice and good. Central to the Bible's message is the claim that left to our own devices, we are like Jerusalem here. We don't speak from a point of self-righteousness. We depend on our own strengths. We give our allegiance and dependence to wealth or comfort or security in family or career. We worship and chase crazy things. And as we do it, we are corrupt. We do harm to ourselves and others. And if there is, as Zephaniah claims in chapter 3, verse 5, a God who is righteous and good and who dispenses justice, 
that would mean that we're in terrible danger. It's the, the wonderful news of Christianity that the same God who gives this warning that we've looked at today also invites us and longs for us to return to him for refuge and shelter. In the Old Testament, that invitation was made again and again. We'll see some of that again next week in Zephaniah. But, but here's how God says it through Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, he says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Do you see the free invitation he extends? Do you see how he longs for his people to return? He goes on, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. Turn to our God for he will freely pardon. A message of judgment is uncomfortable, but without it, that good news of Jesus has no value. This is why we need him. If you want to pursue that more or challenge it, then, then talk to whoever you came with later or, or call one of us at the end and have a chat. Most of us here will be believers. What do we take from a difficult passage like this? I'd like to give you one encouragement and two broad challenges. Encouragement is this. The day of the Lord is coming. And his judgment will be good. It will achieve his purposes. We'll see much more of how that works out next week. But Christian, are you like me? Do you struggle constantly with sins that you can't do away with? Is your heart a microcosm of Israel in the Old Testament that the foreign practices are not driven out? It is frustrating. It is bitter. When will change happen? The day of the Lord is coming and the enemies within the land will be uprooted. He will remove all that is wrong from his people. Every vestige of sin and hurt that you struggle with now, that will go. Are you conscious of external attack? The Lord will vanquish the enemies outside the land. The devil and those who assault his people will be answered and his name will be praised among the nations. He is calling disciples to him from all over the world, even now. Those who are far away and live with no reference to him and those who set themselves up against him as gods in their own eyes, they will be brought under his sovereignty. The day of the Lord is coming. It's a good thing. We, his people, will be brought to fruition be encouraged. Maybe take some time to read over the glorious promise in Revelation 21 and 22. Remind yourself of what is to come. That's the encouragement. Two challenges. The first challenge is this. Apply this passage to yourself. 
Perhaps, like me, you sometimes find yourself reading about Israel in the Old Testament or the disciples in the New Testament and you're mystified by how much they mess up. They have got God literally there in front of them as a pillar of fire. Or, Or Jesus right there with them and they still don't get it. They get it all wrong. Isn't it bizarre? And the problem is it's so much easier to see their mistakes than my own. If they watched a day in my life, I suspect they'd be able to spot just how warped my priorities are. What, what do I devote all my time and energy to? What do I depend on for security? Can I encourage you to read back through chapter 1 in your quiet times this week? And maybe think, which of those accusations hits closest to home for you? Is it worship of created things? Pursuit of wealth or pleasure as the Baal and Moloch worshippers did in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5? Is it self-sufficiency like in verse 18? Is it just getting on with life like in verse 11 and adopting the ways of the world around us like in verse 8 and 9? For me, it's, it's verse 6 and 12. It's the complacency that rings alarmingly true. Where is the contrast for you? Like in chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, where's the contrast between the state of our hearts and the absolute dependable goodness of God? Reflect, are there even notes of judgment now? Things that have gone wrong, alarm bells that should be ringing. Like chapter 3, verse 6, places where actually... God, in his grace, sometimes shows us foretastes of disaster to wake us up. I I don't want to give a message of doom and gloom. The, The gospel is joy and hope because anyone who clings to Christ will be sheltered. In Christ, this burden of judgment is relieved. In Christ, the weight of guilt is lifted and replaced with an inheritance which is secure. But my complacency comes about when I forget my need for that. It's essential that we use passages like this to keep our eyes open, to see our faults and our need, so that we will then cling to his cross and rejoice in our security. The righteous Lord's good judgment is coming. Will I be secure on that day? Second challenge is this. Apply this to the way that you see people around you. Isn't it completely crazy that I can look honestly at the state of my heart and be penitent and I can go humbly to the cross and know my need and rejoice in Christ's provision, but then I can act with my colleagues at work as if I've got nothing for them? As if they're fine? As if their need isn't as great, as desperate as mine. There is something wrong with that. Now absolutely, we we have to be sensitive as we talk to other people about the gospel. We are not in a position to be high-handed. We need to be gentle and humble. But how much more persistent would I be if I really thought through what Zephaniah 2 means to my non-Christian friends? How urgent would I be in prayer? Do my family and my neighbours know the danger that I believe hangs over them? 
Do they understand why I think my news is so good? Do we communicate that? Or am I too embarrassed of stepping on someone else's toes? Or have I just not thought it through? Or do I just not care? The righteous Lord's good judgment is coming. What would it look like for you to live and pray accordingly? Let me pray for us as we finish. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify, I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Father in heaven, you know all the frailties of our hearts. You know how blind we are to our own needs and how unresponsive we can be to your word. Father God, by your spirit, please let these warnings of judgment strike home in us. Make us aware, please, of the contrast between our lives and your life. By your spirit, strike our hearts so that we would be quick to seek you, so that we would cling to you and your promises. And Father, fill our eyes with the wonder of what you achieve in your son at his cross and resurrection. Teach us, please, then, to live as those who have received shelter. And as those who have that same shelter to offer to those you've placed around us. Amen.